Well, I wonder how many here this morning had a New Year's resolution that they embarked upon at the beginning of this year. Anybody? Anyone? Like no one? Come on, there must be a few. How are you going with that? You're still hitting the gym, still on the diet, whatever it is that you're doing. Um, also wonder if there was a particular passage of Scripture uh, that anyone here this morning, maybe a number of us, really felt that the Lord gave to them as a way of beginning the year out, uh, an encouraging passage or something to put their hope in, something to pray into. We're going to try something a little different here this morning. And I'm going to ask you guys to interact with me just a little bit. You don't have to say anything, but what you're going to do is you'll see on the screen in just a moment, uh, there's a QR code. And what I want you to do is point your phone at that QR code and just fill in an answer to that question, if you have one. What verse of Scripture have you found encouraging uh, as we enter 2024? Now, what's going to happen is as you fill that out, your answers will come up on the screen in just a moment. They'll be anonymous. No one's going to know who posted what. Uh, but this is just a way, I think, of us sharing together in what we feel like the Lord is saying to us, what maybe the Lord has been placing on our hearts. And just to see that and celebrate that together um, as we start out this year. So why don't you go ahead and do that. While you're doing that, we're going to play some mood music uh, and just give you a couple of minutes to do that. So how are we going? Has everyone had their chance to respond? Anyone still need a bit more time? All right, so here we go. Here's how you have responded to that question. And we've had 43, 44, it's climbing, 45 responses. John 15, Ephesians, be still and know that I am God. Hey, that one's come up a couple of times. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. See, I'm doing a new thing. The Lord is my strength and my salvation. Uh, God has a plan and a purpose. My sheep hear my voice, they know me and they follow me. Be still and know that I'm God, there's that again. Do not worry about everything, instead pray about everything. Love one another, don't be afraid. Love your neighbor as yourself, remain in me and I will remain in you for a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine. We're gonna actually talk about that this morning. If then, though you're evil, know how to good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So do not fear, for I am with you. Again, I'm doing a new thing. This is amazing. There's a lot of resonance here. I feel that the Lord is really speaking to us about many of the same things. You can ask for anything in my name. There's no condemnation. The God of grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. What a fantastic promise. Rejoice in the Lord. The love of, uh, may the, the, the Lord your God love your Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. My peace I give you. There's so many good things there. That's amazing. I feel like the Lord is speaking to us. He's calling us deeper into his presence. He's calling us to know him and to trust him as we enter 2024. And so with all that in mind, I'm going to just pause and pray. And then we're going to jump into what I feel the Lord's laid on my heart for this year. Uh, as well. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for this wonderful day that we've already enjoyed together in your presence, the privilege of being able to worship you, to enjoy you, to celebrate your goodness. I thank you for all the things that you have been saying to our community already 
at the beginning of this year, and just the chance to see that and, and celebrate that. And Lord, I pray that you will do all that we feel you've placed on our heart to do, both in our own lives personally, but also in our church, across our community. Lord, we thank you, we love you, we honor you, we worship you. And I do pray now that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth would be pleasing to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Before we jump into the message, though, just one last quick announcement, and that is if you are wanting to be baptized this year, and I've heard there's a number of people who have been looking at being baptized this year, just send us an email to that email address and we'll get in touch with you. We're going to run a baptism class uh, very soon. So if you have not been baptized, you should be baptized if you haven't. It's one of the things we do in obedience to the commands of Jesus. So if you haven't been baptized, you should be baptized if you're a believer in Christ. Um, and let us know if that's something that you feel you need to do as a response of obedience, um, then we would love to follow up with you and get that underway. Awesome. All right. Now, while I have been on leave, I have been thinking and praying a lot about this deceptively simple question. What does it really mean to be a Christian? Deceptively simple question. What does it really mean to be a Christian? To truly follow the way of Jesus. How do I do that and how will that change my life? It's one of the reasons we'll be spending all of term two in the Sermon on the Mount because it's Jesus' book of discipleship. It's where he gives us his clearest teaching on what it means to be one of his followers, what it means to follow him, to follow his way, and to do what he requires of us. Now, I want to share with you this morning a text that uh, has been on my mind as I've, as I've been thinking through this question, and it comes from James 3 and 4. And by the way, I've titled this message this morning, Against Potential. And the reason for that, I hope, will become clear as we go along. Now, before we read the passage, it might be helpful to know that the book of James, if you've read it, uh, you'll know that it's an immensely practical book. Uh, and it, the question that it asks and answers is essentially this. If you really believe the message of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ, what kind of life will that create for you? What will happen to you? And what will it look like practically? Like, how will this actually impact the way that you live? So let's read this passage, which I think really digs into that question. James 3, 11, and we'll go through to 18 and then into chapter 4 as well. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by their deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. So don't deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. From where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. 
What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God, but when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but gives favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Take a deep breath. Turn to the person next to you and say, I'm okay. I'm all right. Now, if you've read the book of James, you will know that this is classic James. He speaks directly, he doesn't mince his words, and he makes his points in pretty stark terms. Like, to be friends with the world is to be an enemy of God. Okay, all right, James, dude, like, why don't you just tell us what you really think? Okay, and yes, I know that this passage comes across pretty full on, especially for my first message of 2024. You would think I'd do something nice and fluffy and light and... That's not my style, but as I hope you'll see, if I've understood it correctly, this passage, in fact, while direct, while it says some hard things, it should also lead you into immense freedom and to an immense joy. In fact, what this passage teaches us is very, very good news. Because I think if you grasp what James is telling you, and welcome it into your life. I believe it has the potential to draw you into the kind of life in Christ that you have always been longing for. It will lead you to fullness of joy. Why? Because this passage is about how we grow in Christ and how we produce the fruit of the Spirit, how we progress in the things of God, how we reach our potential, there's that word, how we reach our potential in Christ. Okay, James doesn't use the language of the fruit of the Spirit, but that's what he's talking about. I mean, Paul uses the language of the fruit of the Spirit, as we know, but James uses language of wisdom and good deeds. But it's really the same thing. Like, just look back at verse 17. But the wisdom that comes from heaven, from God, is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. What does that remind you of? It reminds you of Galatians 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Like, God is all for this. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. Let's not become conceited or proud, provoking and envying one another. James is pretty much saying exactly the same thing. They're talking about the same things here. Now, Paul says if we don't keep in step with the Spirit, we'll end up full of pride and envious and provoking one another, and that will lead to conflict. Or as James puts it, peacemakers who sow in peace 
reap a harvest of righteousness. What does it mean to sow in peace? It means that you're a person of rest. It means you're not hustling. It means you're not seeking after conflict. It means that you're not trying to get your own way. You're a person who is devoted to God. You're not striving. So James is telling us that you can live a life of greed and envy and pride, which only leads to conflict and misery, a life full of competing desires and powerless, self-centered prayer, or you can humble yourselves before God, submit to Him, and seek the wisdom of God, which leads to a life of freedom, a life of fruitfulness, a life of good deeds, a life that produces a harvest of righteousness and peace. Who wants a harvest of righteousness of peace in their life? Anyone? I sure do. Now, James begins with a metaphor from the natural world, something pretty obvious. He says in verse 11, can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, a fig tree, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. What's he saying? He's saying that what flows out of your life, the fruit that your life produces, will be determined by what kind of tree or what kind of spring you are. It's the same thing that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, for those of you who know. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, thus by their fruit you will recognize them. And so James goes on to say that a person who produces good fruit out of their life is a righteous person. But here's the thing, here's the question that I wanna ask you this morning. Do you know if you're a good tree or a bad tree? Most of us, I think, would have no idea if we're a good tree or a bad tree. Why? Because, friends, we are so good at faking it. We are so good at deceiving ourselves. We are so well practiced at making ourselves look good and really well put together on the outside, but we are truly awful, terrible at attending to what is going on in our hearts. We're experts at the external, but not so much at dealing with what is going on in our souls. We would rather not go there. What do I mean by this? Um, I came across a fantastic illustration by Paul David Tripp this week, and he writes this. Next slide. Let's say I have an apple tree in my backyard. Each year its apples are dry, wrinkled, brown, and pulpy. After several seasons, my wife says, it doesn't make any sense to have this huge tree and never be able to eat any apples from it. Can't you do something? And then one day, my wife looks out the window and sees me in the yard carrying branch cutters and an industrial-grade staple gun, a ladder, and two bushels of apples. I climb up the ladder, cut off all the pulpy apples, and staple shiny red apples onto every branch in the tree. From a distance, our tree looks like it is full of a beautiful harvest. But if you were my wife, what would you be thinking of me at this moment? If a tree produces bad apples year after year, there is something drastically wrong with its system, down to its very roots. I won't solve the problem by stapling new apples onto the branches. They will also rot because they're not attached to a life-giving root system. And next spring, I'll have the same problem 
all over again. I will not see a new crop of healthy apples because my solution has not gone to the heart of the problem. If the tree's roots remain unchanged, it will never produce good apples. The point is much of what we do to produce growth and change in ourselves and others is little more than fruit stapling. It attempts to exchange apples for apples without examining the heart, the root behind the behavior. This is the very thing for which Christ criticized the Pharisees, that you wash the outside of the cup, but you leave the inside filthy. Change that ignores the heart will never transform the life. For a while, like, it might seem like the real thing, it might look real, for a while it might look good, uh, but it will prove temporary and it will be cosmetic. And sooner or later you'll be back up the ladder, stapling on more apples. Does anyone feel like that describes their spiritual life? You don't have to acknowledge that publicly. The truth is, friends, that many of us approach our spiritual lives in exactly the same way. We're either looking for a quick fix, or we're approaching our spirituality hoping that inputs from the outside, that great new worship song, that amazing church service, that New Year's resolution, that new book that my pastor recommended I read, I recommend a lot of books all the time, my staff are sick of it, even that new spiritual discipline, we're hoping that it will quickly change us, but it won't. It won't. That's why most people can come to church every Sunday, read the Bible all their lives, learn how to be a good Christian on the outside, but on the inside, they are still full of anger and of resentment and of bitterness and of lust and of greed and self-pity. For years, I went to churches that preached every Sunday stuff like, here's three ways to become a person of power, or five ways to reach your destiny in Christ, or 10 ways to fulfill your potential. And none of that stuff is bad on its own, but if power or destiny or potential end up just looking like success, prosperity, and accomplishment, as the world defines it, not as Christ defines it, then we have a huge problem in the church. Are you with me? By their fruit, you will recognize them, said Jesus. Well, what fruit are we talking about here? The fruit of success and accomplishment, fruit of looking good on the outside, or is it fruit that will remain, fruit of the Spirit? I don't know about you, friends, I do not want to staple any more apples onto the tree of my life. I want fruit that grows from an abiding life in Christ, not the fruit of hurry and ambition. I want fruit that is watered by the overflow of God's presence, not by licking the dregs off the bottom of the well. I want fruit that is real and will remain, not fruit that is fake and temporary. I want to be a good tree that produces good fruit. Do you? So I have to ask and be honest, what is happening below the surface of my life that is crying out for my attention? And what is happening below the surface of your life that is crying out for your attention? Yes, let's be real, it can be, it is so much easier at times to just staple the fruit on. It's faster, it's more efficient, it's less work in the short term. But it also creates frustration and sadness and futility in a constant cycle of shame. What do I mean by that? I mean so many Christians that I have walked with over the years 
and I've been in this place myself, where you're trying and failing, trying and failing, trying and failing, and it just seems like you never make any progress in Christ. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? It's like you take one step forward and two steps back, and it's just so frustrating, and you just end up feeling ashamed and exhausted. And I think James really understands this. Listen to what he says in chapter 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Right? Does anyone here have desires that you feel are at war with themselves in your heart, in your life? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. Maybe you don't kill literally, but you might kill with your words. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. But when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. And I'll explain what that means in a minute, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. What he's describing is a life that sounds a lot like futility and frustration. Who wants to live there, right? A life where you're ignoring what's really going on in your heart just leads to futility, frustration, and conflict. That's what James is saying. And then this, you adulterous people, thank you, James. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Friends, what's an adulterer? Someone who's married but also wants some action on the side, right? We, we know that. And this is what James is talking about when it comes to our relationship with God. You want both God and the world. You're all torn up on the inside with competing desires, but in the end, what you really want is friendship with the world, with God on the side. And so you're making yourself an enemy of God, and you don't want to do that. As Jesus said, you cannot serve both God and mammon. You cannot serve both God and the world. You cannot have two masters. In the end, you'll love the one and hate the other. And when you live this way, what's James saying? He's saying, in the end, the world always wins. The world gets your heart, and you end up an enemy of God. You may not have intended that at all. You didn't start out to be an enemy of God, but if you give yourself into these competing desires and you live as an adulterer spiritually, then what you end up as is an enemy of God. But since we don't really want to address that problem, we just keep stapling the fruit on Sunday, and then we watch it die on the vine on Monday. But here's the good news. Here's the really, really good news that's at the heart of this passage. Are you ready? You can do absolutely nothing to fix this. Amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord. I'll finish up now. Turn to the person. That was a great message. That was a great message. You have no power whatsoever to fix what is rotten within you. You have no potential at all to make yourself a good tree that will produce good fruit. That's the good news. And this is where we have to begin if we do actually hope to change. What We must stand against the idea that we have any potential or power whatsoever to do what is needed to produce the fruit of righteousness. Can you say an amen with me? The only things within your power to do, the only things within your power to do are to tell yourself the truth, to tell yourself the truth, and to humble yourself before Almighty God. Thomas Merton said this, in order to become myself, I must cease to be 
what I always thought I wanted to be. In order to find myself, I must lose myself. And in order to live, I have to die. The reason for this is that I am born in selfishness, and therefore my natural efforts to make myself more real and more myself make me less real and less myself because they revolve around a lie. What lie is that? That you can change yourself, that you can become a good tree that produces good fruit by your best efforts, by your good works. So what James and Thomas Merton are telling us is that we have to kill the lie that we know what we're doing. We have to kill the lie that we can do this. We have to kill the lie that we're in control. We have to kill the lie that we can fix ourselves. And that means we have to ask God friends, to kill our pride, to kill our self-centeredness, to kill our self-resourcefulness, to kill our self-directedness. And this is what James tells us right at the beginning, verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the, can you say it with me, in the humility, oh, I didn't put that on the screen, my bad, in the humility, the humility, let's say that in the humility that comes from wisdom. So, friends, deeds done in humility is what James is after here. Humility, of course, is the opposite of pride. Now, we don't talk about pride very much these days, or humility. In fact, these two things have been largely lost, I think, from our cultural discourse. Like, when was the last time you had a good conversation with someone about the virtues of humility? Right? Now, maybe we recognize pride and what have you, and I'll, I've got a quote from, of course, C.S. Lewis here in just a moment. But it really struck me as I was thinking about this that I can't think of the last time I really dug into a deep conversation with someone, with a spiritual director or even in my own prayer life, where I was really thinking and dwelling on the value of humility. And C.S. Lewis says, there is one vice of which no person in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when they see it in someone else, and of which hardly anyone, except perhaps Christians, ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. There is no fault which makes a person more unpopular, and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Let's say that again. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And the way James describes pride as envy and selfish ambition and self-centered prayer seems to me to be just like this great black hole of desire and frustration that slowly but inevitably sucks you into its orbit until your whole life has been swallowed up by it. But that is not what God wants for us. It's not what God wants for you. Even though we are so often unfaithful, look at how he describes the heart of God, that God has this jealous longing for us to know him and trust him. He doesn't give up on us. He's always crying out within us that we might come to our senses 
And he is so poised, James says, to pour out more grace on us, as much grace as we need, if only we'll resist the devil and humble ourselves before him. So the enemy might be trying to lure you away into a life of self-centered destruction, but God's jealous love is so much more powerful, and it is crying out within you day and night to come to him and receive him and humble yourself before him. As Eugene Peterson used to say, God loves you. He is on your side. He is coming after you. He is relentless. God loves you. He is on your side. He is coming after you. He is relentless. James says it like this, that the Spirit is calling out to us jealously within us. And that relentlessness of God is what his jealousy means. And yet, perhaps, The reason we do not experience the flourishing that God jealously desires and intends for us in Christ is because, friends, we have not been willing to admit just how deeply we are, in fact, infected with pride, all of us. See, right, the problem is, and we'll talk about this more next week, we live in such an overwhelmingly individualistic culture, a culture in which If you've grown up in the West, and I know not everyone here has grown up in the West, but if you have, it's been smashed into you pretty much from the day that you were born that you can be who you choose to be, that you get to create yourself, that you make yourself who you want to be, and that all you need to do is be true to yourself in order to realize your potential. The funny thing is that all of that language runs so counter to the gospel. That is just pride dressed up in other words. And this is the water we swim in, and it's infected our spiritual lives so that we don't actually see what it is for what it truly is. Now, I've run out of time, um, but I'm going to just jump forward, guys, on the slide. I'm going to skip over the six marks of pride. I'll send something out to you via email on this. Um, But I I was going to look at Jonathan Edwards' six marks of pride, which are very insightful. But I want to go to the last one, where he says, if you go to the last of those slides, thanks, Aidan. One of the things Edward says is that a proud person is often unhappy and sorry for themselves, and here's the reason why. Proud people are often filled with self-pity because first, they're so sure about how life should go, or how life ought to go, and secondly, they're sure that they deserve a good life. But humble people say, I, in fact, deserve to be cast off, but only by God's grace am I living. All I have is a gift from God, and I don't actually know what's best for me, but as a result, I will humble myself and seek the will of my Father. And so he says, Jonathan Edwards says, proud people are always filled with self-pity and are unhappy with life and so often have a low self-esteem, ironically, but humble people very seldom are filled with self-pity or have a low self-esteem because they have no self-regard at all. As has been said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking about yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself because you know you're a child of God. You know you're a creation of God's goodness, made in the image of God, crowned with glory and honor. You know that. That's your status. That's your identity as a follower of Jesus. You don't have to sell... You don't have to trumpet that to everyone you meet. That's a deep-centered sense of uh, solidity in your identity, in your soul. So humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. 
You're not looking at yourself and thinking about yourself all the time, comparing yourself to other people, because on the inside, a humble person is confident of their value before God and their worth in God, and that God can actually be trusted to, to take care of the circumstances of your life. That's what humility looks like, one of the marks of humility. Now, humility, friends, the reason why this is so important, humility is the only, can I just say this as emphatically as I can, humility is the only pathway to a spiritually flourishing life. Humility is the only pathway to a spiritually flourishing life in Christ. But we do have to be careful that we don't approach this as just another task, another thing we must do, another mountain to conquer. Jack Bernard, in his book, How to Become a Saint, writes this, the downfall of attempts to become humble is that they are usually driven by the desire to become superior. If you set out to get rid of pride or to develop humility, you are going to fall flat on your face. If you are fortunate, you will fail at it in such a way that you can see not only that you have failed, but that you have within yourself no potential to do otherwise. The key word here is potential. The standard trick of pride is to protect oneself from facing reality, from telling ourselves the truth, by always claiming unrealized potential. We say to ourselves, I could do it if only. Therefore, actual failures at spiritual achievement are not accepted as a true reflection of the self. Before we can actually live in reality and advance in the spiritual life, we must rid ourselves of the notion that we have potential. We do not. We are spiritually bankrupt. Only deliverance by someone other than ourselves will keep us out of the pit. Friends, that is the gospel. That is the good news. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. We celebrate when we gather together in church that we could not save ourselves, but we have been saved by Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection, that everything we've received from him is a gift of his grace. We didn't earn it. And that's what uh, uh, Bernard here is trying to get at. So friends, James doesn't mean for humility to be just like a stage in our spiritual progress, but it is the way we spiritually progress. We never graduate from humility because we never graduate from dependence on God. Are you with me? Now, of course, we love that bit in James that says, come near to God and he will come near to you. We say this in church all the time. Friends, come near to God and he will come near to you. And we love that, but we almost never read it in context. The next thing James says is, wash your hands, you sinners. Change, uh, you know, purify your hearts, you double-minded, grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Look, James isn't saying be down on yourself, beat yourself up, think less of yourself, make yourself an object of scorn. He's saying recognize before the Lord when you say, God, I come near to you, I pray that you'll come near to me, that the only posture we can take when we, take, when, we, when we pray that prayer is a posture of humility on our knees before our Father who is the provider of all that we need for life and godliness. In other words, friends, and I'm bringing this to a conclusion, James is just pleading with you to be real 
James is pleading with you to be honest. James is pleading with you to put aside all the things that you have built up to protect yourself from God. Put them aside and be real before him. Cry out to him. Ask him for help. Humble yourself before him. Now, if we find, friends, that there's much in our hearts that is rotten, then we don't just staple on some external fruit and hope that will fix things. We come before our Father in heaven and we humble ourselves, trusting in the one, the only one, who can save us and change us. And this is the gospel we preach. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to invite the band to come on up the front here this morning. And I felt that as we begin this year, um, and I know we're several weeks in, but this is my first Sunday back, so this is the beginning of the year for me. As we begin this year, that we would take a, some time to actually do this, to humble ourselves, to consecrate our hearts, to prepare ourselves for a life of spiritual growth and flourishing as we get on our knees before our Heavenly Father and ask Him for help. And so I have a prayer. I've been digging around for a prayer this week that I think expresses what James is trying to say to us in this passage. And I found one, and I was a bit reluctant to bring it to church this morning because it's pretty full on. It's pretty confronting. It's pretty searching. Like, to pray this prayer um, really just kind of opens up your heart to God and says, look, God, I've got all these competing desires within me. I have all these things that are tearing for my attention. I have all these things in my life that are pulling me away from your love, but I want to acknowledge them and ask you for help. Right? And that's where it begins. And so if you're brave enough, I'd love for you to join me in this prayer. And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask you to stand. And then I'm going to ask you, for those of you who want to join me in this, and no one's going to lay hands on you, but what I'd love you to do is actually like, as an act of faith and, and humility, of surrender, actually just come forward and line up across the front of this church as much as we can. And kind of just a prophetic, symbolic act, we come to the altar of the Lord, we come before His throne, we come before His presence, and we ask Him for help, which we're invited to do. As Hebrews says, if anyone needs help, you can come into the presence of your Father and ask for it, and He loves you and He will help you. So I'm going to ask you guys to come forward and just line up across the front here. Don't be shy. Like as I said, no one's going to lay hands on you today. This is not a time for one-on-one uh, -on -one prayer ministry, but an act of consecration, all of us as a family, as a church, to pray this together. So come on forward, and if we need to push some of these chairs at the front back, that's okay. But fill up the sides, go right around to the doors if we need to. Just come, like gather before the cross. Come before your Father in heaven. Squeeze in. That's it. That's awesome. And let's open up our hands just for a moment and wait on the Lord before we pray this prayer together. And just acknowledge our need of God. Acknowledge that we don't have potential within us to make ourselves righteous we need God's help, that we need God's deliverance, that we need God's power, we need God's grace. Do you need grace this morning? 
the Spirit of God is crying out within your heart that He wants to pour out grace upon you. So just say, Lord, I receive your grace. I thank you for your help. I thank you for your help. I receive your presence. I receive your love. Help me, Lord. And so here's this prayer that we are going to pray together. And after each line, we just say together, deliver me, Lord Jesus. So we're ready. We're going to say this together. Oh, Jesus, meek and humble of heart, hear me. From the desire of being esteemed, deliver me, Lord Jesus. From the desire of being celebrated, deliver me, Lord Jesus. From the desire of being honored, deliver me, Lord Jesus. From the desire of being praised, deliver me, Lord Jesus. From the desire of being preferred, deliver me, Lord Jesus. From the desire of being consulted, deliver me, Lord Jesus. From the desire of being approved, deliver me, Lord Jesus. From the fear of being humiliated, deliver me, Lord Jesus. From the fear of being despised, deliver me, Lord Jesus. From the fear of being rebuked, deliver me, Lord Jesus. From the fear of being rejected, deliver me, Lord Jesus. From the fear of being forgotten, deliver me, Lord Jesus. From the fear of being ridiculed, deliver me, Lord Jesus. From the fear of being wronged, deliver me, Lord Jesus. From the fear of being suspected, deliver me, Lord Jesus. And now we change it up slightly that others may be loved more than I. Grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be esteemed more than I. Grant me the grace to desire it. That others may increase and I may decrease. Grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be chosen and I set aside. Grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be praised and I unnoticed. Grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be preferred to me in everything. Grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be blessed more than I. Grant me the grace to desire it. That I may not compare my holiness with others, but become as holy as you deserve. Grant me the grace to desire it. Before we say amen, I just want you to sit with that prayer for a moment. And if there's anything that's stirring within you as you've prayed, Certainly through that prayer a number of times I'm like, oh man, do I really do I really believe that? Do I really want that? Those are the nudgings of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I surrender these things that have bothered me about that prayer. Surrender my life to you completely. Make me wholly yours. And Lord, in the place of all of these things that the world provides me, I pray that I would find my greatest satisfaction and my deepest joy in you. That you would be my provider. That you would be my strength. That you would be my joy. That you would be my light and my salvation. That you would be all that I desire. 
you would be all that I need. Lord, help me to find what I'm looking for in your presence and in your love. I pray that you would kill these competing desires within me that draw me away from you to the world. Help me to find my deepest sense of belonging and identity in your presence and in your love. And I consecrate my life to you this year, Lord Jesus. I humble myself before you, and I ask that you would teach me your ways. Show me how to walk in them. Make me a good tree that can produce good fruit. Lord Jesus, in your gracious name, 